We believe emotional well-being is intricately tied to spiritual connection. We know that there is hope for those of us who have experienced trauma, even profound trauma, and that's why we created the Universe Is Your Therapist podcast. We envision a world of healing and connection and teach you simple but powerful practices to help you come home to your highest self, to your truest identity. We believe you are a divine soul who's deeply loved and that the entire universe conspires for your good. You're valued beyond comprehension, and we want to help you realize that. You are not broken, you are loved, and you can heal. Hi, my name is Dr. Amy Hoyt, and together with my sister, Lena, a licensed marriage and family therapist, we will lead you on a journey of self-discovery and self-love. Today's episode, we are going to talk about it is not your fault. So what does that mean exactly? When bad things or difficult things happen to us, one of the brain's protective features is to assume responsibility in the misguided belief that if I am responsible somehow, then I can prevent it from ever happening again. So it's about controlling the outcome of the future to keep you safe. Right. And it's done subconsciously. It's not a conscious thought. It is adaptive, actually. Otherwise, we would never be able to leave our house again. Right. Speak a little bit about that. We all know that we take risks every day and the brain is designed to keep us healthy and alive and well and prospering and thriving. And when adverse experiences or trauma or difficult things happen to us, one of the brain's protective features is it decides that that will never happen again. And because their only way to control it never happening again is by assuming that I did something to contribute to the bad event and therefore I can do something or not do something to make sure that it never happens again. The brain assumes responsibility as a way of surviving and being able to function in the world on a day-to-day basis. Because if we let it, our brain may just make sure we never leave the house because there's potential danger everywhere. So one of the things we talked about earlier is When a trauma occurs, the memories get stored in a particular way that can trigger unexpected responses or unexpected memories. So talk about that a little bit. When we have trauma, what occurs is that a bunch of different neuropathways get wired together and they tend to be around what we can hear, sense, see, smell, and taste. What happens then is that the conscious brain isn't aware of all these similar things that are wired together in a neural network. And as it's not aware, we can be really surprised when something can trigger an emotional reaction for us or a traumatic reaction. It's very unanticipated. And to the conscious brain, there's nothing similar in it. Okay, interesting, because I did see a quote from Bessel van der Kolk, and he said that when we have a reaction, it's usually a traumatic memory. And is that what he's referring to? Yes. The current knowledge posits that triggers are actually memories. So if I say to you, I'm being triggered right now, what I'm referencing is that there's something occurring that's bringing me to something that's happened in the past. So if you were assaulted in a back alley, and there was a, a high smell of urine that could absolutely and it could send you. your autonomic nervous system into panic. And again, the fact that it's happening in your autonomic nervous system means you do not have willful control over it, over the response. So you're having a reaction. 
You're not exactly sure why. Where do we want to go from there for having a reaction? How do we move from that space? One of the first things we want to do so that we can reconnect to our prefrontal cortex, which is where our logic and our reason and our wise mind reside, is we want to make sure that we get somewhere where we are safe. The difficulty in that is that the brain's perception of safety is not always accurate. If I'm being triggered by something in my environment, hopefully, and we can't always do this, but hopefully I can find some place where I can be that is removed from those environmental factors, at least temporarily, while I do some self-soothing exercises and get myself back into the present moment. And instead of judging myself for having those reactions, what I want to be able to do is to thank my autonomic nervous system for trying to protect me. I know what happened for me in my earliest trauma is that I felt like I must have done something to provoke the assault. I must have signaled him in a certain way. I must have somehow invited it in, even though I was eight years old. And I don't even know if I was, oh no, I was conscious because I remember praying over and over to be for forgiveness that somehow I had done something, although it was a very violent attack and there was no grooming, whereas I feel like sometimes when you're groomed, you may feel even more of a sense of responsibility. So now as an adult, I mean, I've obviously done a lot of work, but for someone who may not have done as much on their healing journey, how do they stop assigning blame to themselves? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that you and I are really learning right now is that we have to incorporate more than just our logic. However, one exercise that can be very helpful is to think about a friend's child who may be the same age. And if that experience happened to your friend's child, if you would blame that child. And inevitably, because it's a step away from yourself, there's an inherent knowing that you would not blame that child. Now, that doesn't always translate into a full capacity to now stop the self-blame because the self-blame is, again, protective and it's designed to enable us to have a sense of control, which is not accurate, but it helps us get through the day. So being able to see the situation as an outsider through the example of somebody who you love or value or that you see as innocent can be very helpful in rewiring your understanding of your own responsibility and trauma. That makes a lot of sense. What sort of activities could people do to kind of concretize that for themselves? I think that one thing that we can do is we could write a letter to ourselves as if we were our friend's child or beloved niece or nephew or a neighbor's child and write a letter to ourselves as if we were that child and explain to that child why we are not responsible. We can thank the part of our brain that wants us to believe that bad things will never happen again. And we can explain the reason why it's not our fault, their fault. And there's a lot of reasoning that happens when we can remove ourselves, take a step back and become more objective. The logic just kind of pours into you. And then writing it down in the form of a letter to a beloved child allows you to engage a sense of self-compassion for the child that you were. That makes so much sense. You've just created space between your own event and your ability to objectively look at the event. The other thing I was thinking about is 
this idea of choice and agency when we start to blame ourselves. And I love thinking about agency, sovereignty, how people make choices and what they literally have control over and what they don't. And my belief is that we have control over our own choices most of the time, hopefully. Not everyone, depending obviously on your life circumstances and your age and so forth. But ideally, we are able to make our own decisions. And so one thing that I think about when we talk about blaming ourselves for the trauma, whether it was sexual or physical or emotional, is that I didn't choose for that person to hurt me. He made that choice. And so getting really clear on what choices are mine and what choices are not mine helps me sort through some of that self-blame. That's wonderful. I remember one time with a client doing an exercise where I had 10 pennies and I asked the client to assign percentage of responsibility for the trauma. And initially the client put nine pennies on the position that the perpetrator represented, but kept one penny to her own position. And so we explored a little bit what was happening that she experienced some responsibility in that assault. And because it's not logical and because it comes out of the autonomic nervous system, it's really important that when we do have those thoughts or those beliefs about how we could have done something different or better, that we recognize that that is a protective feature of the brain and it is inaccurate. And is it always inaccurate? That's a really nuanced, layered question. I think that I'll I'll use myself as an example. I know that when I'm speeding, I have less control over the car. And so if something were to happen, then I contributed to that. But I didn't choose to purposely cause some wreck. But it's really difficult to talk about that in terms of trauma because it just doesn't work. Anything in regards to trauma can't be layered with any responsibility initially for the victim and maybe not ever. One way to approach it that I've found helpful for some people is to talk about contributors. So if I was in a bad car accident that I caused, then what were my contributors? I wasn't paying attention or I was speeding, that sort of thing. But I still didn't set out to cause an accident and create harm and damage and chaos. Right. So it's also about intent and motivation. And that's a really tricky question for humans. Especially I'm thinking as a perpetrator, I would be surprised if you talk to any perpetrator of trauma. I'm not just simply talking sexual trauma. I'm talking a parent who hit their child over and over and got lost control. I would be shocked if we ever found someone that said I intended to harm them irrevocably. And so I think it's it's difficult for sure to speak about really assigning blame. And that brings up a really interesting area in that many of us have been raised in a culture that dictates that the parent's behavior is excused by the child's behavior. Okay, so if the child's throwing a fit, you're justifiable swatting them on the the bum or whatever. So so my favorite example to use in the office is if the parent says to the child, I wouldn't have to yell if you would listen to me the first time. 
Well, it brings up a really interesting nuance of agency because presumably my choice to yell is always my choice. And yet if I grow up with a parent who can't regulate and then blames me because they can't regulate, then I have a very, very different idea about what my own will, agency and volition actually mean. Where do we know when we're causing trauma and when we've simply made a mistake that we can apologize for and people can get over it. Because I think it's important. I firmly believe that in order to stay out of judgment, I always have to look at myself as someone who has been victimized, because I have on multiple occasions, as well as someone that has the potential to perpetrate in terms of any behavior that's out of control that hurts another person. I don't know that the language causing trauma is helpful. And the reason why is because trauma is in many situations unpredictable. There are certain situations that we all can understand and see would be traumatic for almost anyone. There are other situations where depending on the experiences and the belief system, the inner resilience, the sense of self, the sense of choice, that all can determine in an individual whether or not they experience something okay, that's traumatic. So it's really your autonomic nervous system is going to determine whether an event is traumatic or not. Yes. And it is beyond our conscious will. I don't choose to be traumatized by something. It is not a choice. Okay, that adds another meaning to it's not your fault. You don't choose how you're traumatized. So growing up in the same family, an event that may have traumatized me would not have traumatized you, depending on how we were resourcing at the time and birth order and our relationship with the person. Do you have another example of trauma that you didn't choose? This is a pretty benign example, but I think it can be generalized and hopefully it can be helpful to some people. I had a favorite Mexican restaurant that I went to all the time when I was in college. And one time I went and I had cheese enchiladas and I had food poisoning. And that was four days in a row. And I was violently, violently ill. And I never went back to that restaurant, even though I'd eaten there dozens of times, loved the food, had never had a bad reaction. The physiological trauma created also an additional psychological trauma that caused me to avoid that restaurant so that my body would not be traumatized again by the potential food poisoning. Did your autonomic nervous system perceive food poisoning as a traumatic event? Yes, and it's also medically traumatic, physiologically traumatic. And it was outside my consciousness. In fact, I didn't even really put it together until we were talking this morning. And that's how trauma can affect us. Yeah, it just stays in the background until it, something sparks it, which is why when we say someone is being triggered or there is a trigger, it's so surprising because especially the first time you are not sure why you're maybe overreacting. I wonder if it's more helpful to describe it as having a large reaction because yes. overreacting by implication in the English language has a negative connotation and the large reaction is not by choice. Right. So if we went back to our college town and I said, I'm so excited, I'm going to take you to my favorite restaurant and I inadvertently took you back to that same restaurant, you may have a disproportionate reaction to that restaurant, even unbeknownst to you why you were having such a big reaction. And it may show up in irritation or sharpness. So I may say to you, no, I'm not going to that restaurant. In fact, I was thinking as you were talking, I've never had a cheese enchilada since 1991. And the cheese enchilada is not responsible. Anything else 
we want to leave with our listeners for today. One, it's definitely not your fault. Your reactions aren't even your fault. I would say once we're aware that it's a reaction to a trauma, our responsibility, not our fault, is to kind of use benevolent curiosity to kind of poke at it and like, wow, why was I so reactive? Well, and I wonder if there's yet another way of saying that. So instead of looking at it as our responsibility, it's an opportunity. So we have an opportunity to look and be benevolently curious. And that leads us into another topic that we will pursue in the future, which is the idea of awareness and insight and what we do with those things once we have them. Yes. One thing that we talked about was the idea of anything that you may avoid pretty um, consistently in life that's relatively benign, doesn't need to be horrific, to increase your awareness about how your autonomic nervous system is working within you without your conscious awareness. So the goal of this exercise is to broaden our, our conscious awareness of how we respond and then to be curious about why. And if they feel so inclined to write a letter to a neighbor's child as a friend, that might bring out some resourcing, some logic and some additional caretaking of the self. So one of the things that so many people struggle with when they've gone through trauma is self-blame. How do you feel like spirituality or God fits into self-blame? That's a really complicated question. And I think that it is one of the most important things that I think we can do with the people that we're working with is help each of them figure this out on a personal level. It's really difficult when you've gone through something horrific and there's a sense of isolation. And many people will talk about how they've reached out to a higher power or a divine in the midst of a trauma and that there was silence. I know that we're not alone. Yeah, one of the things you and I talk about a lot is there are a lot of people who will say God didn't intervene because of this or because of that, or you need to go through these trials and that's why he didn't intervene. And the truth is we actually don't know. We don't know why some of us are rescued and some of us aren't. I wasn't rescued and yet I feel rescued at this point. So the rescue didn't come when I I would have liked it to come when I was eight, but it has come. I don't know why there was a delay. I don't know why so many things happened that were outside of my control. And there was certainly a time where I felt the divine was so distant and I had been left alone. And that was a really, really lonely road. I actually spent several years believing that I was atheist and I was. I had lost hope in a power greater than myself. I had no belief that there was a God. And I can look back and see that that actually felt lonelier for me than realizing that I don't know the answers, but my belief is still that I am part of something bigger, something greater. And I am fortunate that I have experienced different miracles in my life where it has made it easier for me to believe again, but it is a choice. It's a choice to, to lean into that belief. And again, when we can choose our thoughts and our thoughts inform our feelings and our feelings make up our personality, I'm choosing hope and I'm choosing in a belief of a power much greater than me. I don't know the answers, but I do know that I'm not in charge of the plan. I'm simply in charge of myself and some of these kiddos until they're adults. You know, that's not a very satisfactory answer. And the human brain is consistently looking for explanations. It's 
part of what the brain does constantly is it looks for links and connections and explanations. And your statement about, I wasn't rescued when I was eight and I feel rescued now, maybe that is a talisman of hope for people. Or maybe that can be that the rescue can come and can happen. And while it didn't happen in the traumatic event itself, we haven't been left alone. No. And yet, if you feel alone, I so understand that. And I am here for that. Just to validate how sometimes the belief in someone not helping you in your hour of need, sometimes letting go of that feels like a relief. I thought it would be a relief for me. But what it actually did is it took down all of my frameworks for so many years. I felt really, I don't even know how to describe it. I felt very lost. I felt like I had to rebuild all of my frameworks and it it was a lot of energy. And I'm really glad I did it because I feel like as I began to believe again, and as I began to look for the miracles in my life, and as I began to name them and call more into my life with my belief that it has simply made me a stronger person to have had built up a framework outside of a religious belief and then coupled it with my spiritual practices and my religious beliefs now. But I honestly, I mean, when I'm talking to my family and close friends, I frequently say that was definitely the hardest thing I've ever been through is losing my belief much harder than assault or violence or abuse. So it is certainly with that in mind that I truly feel grateful to have a belief intact again. And it doesn't look exactly like it did before, but I don't think it was supposed to. Right. That's the opportunity that comes with growth is a deepening of our understanding. Every week we give away fun swag. And if you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a review on Apple podcast or go on your Instagram stories and talk about the episode and tag us at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. It really means so much to us that you take the time to listen and engage with us. And we love you all and know that together we can build a beautiful world. There's so many good episodes coming up. So definitely subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And go ahead and leave us a review because it is free and it only takes a minute and it would really mean so much to us. Finally, if you're inspired by this episode and you think of someone who would love it or learn from it, feel free to send them the link or post about it on Instagram and tag us and we'll repost a few. Again, that's at Mending Trauma or at Amy Hoyt PhD. We love you. We'll be back in a few days. Keep healing.